following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Let's take a dive this morning into the book of Luke in the New Testament. Uh, Many of you are obviously familiar with Luke, but if you're not, that's fine. Luke is one of the four books that we have that tell the story, the biography of Jesus and his life. And a lot of the, the stories across the four books are the same, but each author kind of brings out their own sort of themes, their own sort of ideas throughout the stories. And one of the things that Luke picks up on is he picks up on all of the crowds that were following Jesus wherever he went, which is not really surprising. I mean, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the people in the first century and they're hearing about Jesus, it's not a surprise that he was popular. I mean, if you heard someone rocking around Auckland who is healing people, who's raising people from the dead, who is teaching and and annoying the, the leaders with this controversial teaching, you'd probably want to see what's up. And he even caters his own events. You know, he's feeding 5,000 here, he's feeding 4,000 over here. I'd probably show up just for the free feed. So there's no surprise that there is a great big crowd following Jesus. And they're all super excited. I mean, there's this this energy that's flowing through the crowd because you never know what Jesus is going to do next. You don't know who he's going to heal or what he's going to say or what he's going to produce you know, and there's this excitement about who he's going to be. And we get this feeling that Jesus is actually going to be the big hero that we've been waiting for. The one who is going to overthrow the Roman army and lead us all into glory. And it's so exciting to be a part of it. I mean, it's, it's super fun to be there with Jesus. And then Jesus turns around and he looks directly at the crowd and he opens his mouth. And he was like, shh, he's going to talk. He's going to say something. (laughs) And he says this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, yeah, 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 and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be their disciple. Sorry, Jesus, um, don't mean to be rude here. Just want to clarify something. Thought I heard you say hate. Must be my mistake. I'm sure what you meant to say was love, right? If we want to come to you, if we don't love our mother and father, brother and sister, wife and children, can't be your disciple, right? Love, that's what you meant? No? Hate? Hate's what you meant? Okay. All right. Let me just process that for a second. Wow. It's not fun anymore, is it? Zero fun, sir. Some people might be prone to say that Jesus, like Denzel, was being a little bit harsh with those words. Just just a little bit too much. I mean, after all, what did the crowds do to him? Why is he so anti the crowds? I mean, they're for him. They're following him. They're excited about him. They're on board with who he is. And then here's Jesus laying a metaphorical two-by-four across their face. I mean, this is rough. And it's not like this is the only place that Jesus does this. I mean, if you read the book of Luke, throughout the whole book, it seems like Jesus is spending more time pushing people away 
than he is drawing them near. I mean, it's completely foreign to us and the way that we do evangelism, the way that we do church. It's really, really bad PR, just really horrible. Now, if I'm to believe that Jesus knows what he's doing, and yes, I do, we have to ask the question, why is he like this? Why is he being harsh on this crowd? Why is he pushing people away? I think the answer comes later on in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Revelation's written several decades after the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And churches have popped up all over the place. Things are going really well. And then in the book of Revelation, Jesus has a message for several of the churches. Um, And one of the churches, Laodicea, he says this. He says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So, God. I know your deeds, he says, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined with fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Buy from me, not from the world is what he's saying. So, I mean, if you look at this church, it seems like, I mean, they're not super evil or anything. They're not worshiping Satan. They're not like, you know, completely desecrating Scripture or anything like that. Really, it seems like the church is just kind of, yeah, it's just kind of there. They're happy to have Jesus' name on the door, but there's no passion for Him. There's no fire. There's no zeal. There's no sense of urgency for who Jesus is. They're just kind of there. They had money. That was good. They're comfortable. They're complacent, they're happy. And they just completely blind to the fact that God saw them as wretched, poor, naked, blind. They completely missed what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And he was getting ready to spit them out of his mouth. And dang it all, if that does not sound familiar... Of all of the churches, of all of the churches mentioned in Revelation, of all of the things that Jesus had to say, this one just sounds a little bit more familiar, doesn't it? A lukewarm church. I mean, this is a country where a third of the nation says that they are Christian, and yet less less than 10% are committed to being part of the community. And what is that even about? Can you imagine trying to explain to Paul or to Jesus or to one of the early Christian fathers about that, yeah, we have a third of the nation who are Christian, but only 10% of them really care? That is such a foreign concept. How does that even happen? Is it possible we've just simply made it too easy? That it's just too simple? 
and it hasn't cost us anything? You want to know where the most powerful, energetic, and successful churches in the world are? They are in the nations that are hell-bent on trying to destroy them. They are in the places where it hurts to be a Christian. They are in the places where you don't just tick Christian on the census, because that's a death sentence. They are in places where the churches meet underground, and they're hidden, and they have all of these like secret stuff to get involved with it, because if people found out where they were, they would come and they would raid it, and they'd put you in prison, beat you, or kill you. It costs something to be a Christian in those places. It's hard. It has to really, really mean something. And is it possible that because becoming a Christian is so easy for us, it's created a spiritual lethargy, laziness, a spiritual laziness in us as a nation. I'm not pointing fingers here in particular. <laughs> is it possible that we've forgotten that following Jesus actually costs us everything and everyone that we have? Would we all really truly be Christians if we understood that? Jesus wants to head this off from the beginning. He knows, I think, I don't exactly know the mechanics of what Jesus knew about the future during his time on earth, but God certainly knew what was going to happen in Laodicea. He knew what was going to happen in New Zealand and across, let's be honest, a lot of the Western world about the spiritual laziness. And he's like, no, this, no, this is not going to happen or I'm going to do what I need to do to change the tide here. And so he says to this crowd in the most confronting, the most controversial, the most painful way possible, this is going to be hard, and this is going to cost you everything. He says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. There's really no way around these words. They're hard. Now, we do have to jump in, of course, and we have to, to kind of address this word hate. Uh, hate is, to our ears, a very different word than what Jesus would have spoken. It's perhaps not the best English translation. Hate back then wasn't so much an emotional response, but rather a willful one. There's another verse um, in 13 where Jesus says, if you don't renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. That's a better word, I think, renounce. It's one of my commentators called it loving less. So it's kind of a priorities thing. If you do not demote everyone else in your family so that I can hit the top spot, you cannot be my disciple. Which makes it a little easier to hear, right? But I don't want that to soften what he's actually saying. Because the other thing we need to think about is that this is a honor and shame-based society, okay? So people act based on what is honorable, and they avoid what is shameful. And one of the greatest shameful things that a person can do is to abandon their family, 
to not look after their family. Family was of the highest importance. In fact, Jesus talks a lot about honoring your mother and father. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's a big deal. And yet Jesus is telling us here, no, no, no. If you cannot walk away from them for my sake, if you cannot forsake them, if you cannot abandon them for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. Ah, oh, that's hard. That's hard. We have to ask, does God truly have authority, full and complete authority in my life? Is he the top dog? See, for us in, in, in New Zealand, family is, is super important. We, we kind of put that up there, but it's not the only thing that society values. Society has a lot of things that we don't necessarily say it, but we basically say that this is so important, God himself can't touch it. Like, does God have the right to tell me who I can love? Or more to the point, does God have the right to tell me not to be with someone that I already do love? Does God have the right to step into that area of my life and define what love is? What about my dreams? Does God have the right to tell me that what I've been dreaming for and yearning for since a child is actually, no, that's not for me. I want you to do something else. Does he have the right to come in and not just ask us to do something else, but command? Does he have the right to tell me what to do as a parent? Does he have the right to tell me, for example, that my kid is not happy in the school? I want to take him out to another school, but God says, no, actually, I want you to stay there. Does he have the right to say that? Does he have the right to tell me the way that I should parent? Does he have the right to tell me what to do with my money? Yeah, he gets that 10%, but what about the rest of it? Does he have the right to say that I can't buy this house, that I have to rent for the rest of my life? Does he have that right to say that? Does he honestly have the right to tell me to go somewhere else and live my life in a different place? Does he have the right to tell me that if my family doesn't believe the way he does, that I love them, but I love God more. There's a couple of stories in the Bible that I think is going to help highlight this for us. The first one, we actually, Reuben preached on it a few weeks ago. Story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, and Abraham, he's been waiting for a son for such a long time. He finally has a son. Then God's like, all right, I want you to sacrifice that son up on the top of this mountain. And it's like, um, what? But he does. And we know the story. We know that, you know, God stepped in at the last minute and provided the ram for the sacrifice. So he didn't have to sacrifice his son. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham had his hand with a knife hanging above his son. He was ready to do it. Does God have the right to ask a father to do that? I remember sitting right over there, listening to that message, watching my son color in his sheet. <laughs> that was a hard message to listen to and to watch him at the same time and try to put myself in Abraham's shoes. I couldn't really do it. <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't quite get myself into that space. Is God that important to me? 
Could I carry that out? Second story is in Jesus' time. Find it in the book of Mark, chapter 10. Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. It's a nice little sermon by itself, but we'll just leave that for now. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. A little irony there. Thanks, Jesus. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but every time I read that story, the first thing I do in my mind is say, well, God doesn't ask us all to do that. He doesn't ask us all to give away all of our money, you know. That's his example. That was what God asked him to do. He hasn't asked me to do that, so I don't have to do that. You know, like, and it's like, it's true. God doesn't ask us all to do that. But man, we go there quick, don't we? Man, we get to that safe spot really, really quickly. And we avoid the really uncomfortable place of asking, oh goodness, dare we even ask, God, is, do you want me to do that? Is this my example too? Does God even have the right to ask me to give away everything? Not just give away a lot, but everything and completely trust him? <laughs> no, right? Again, I wonder if we let the full weight of what Jesus tells us sit on our shoulders, even for a short time. This is going to cost you everything. Nothing is yours anymore. No one is yours anymore. I remember a conversation I had recently with my son. He's making an appearance today a lot. I hope that's okay with him. Uh, he's, he's been expressing some interest in, in, in giving his life to Jesus, which is great. I mean, every dad loves that moment, right? But I wouldn't want it to be too easy for him. I wanted him to understand these words. So I told him, I said, would you be willing then if God says you had to give away all of your Lego and all of your Spider-Man toys, all gone, just to, be his, just to be a Christian. He went really quiet. He started tearing up a little bit. <laughs> I felt awful. I felt horrible, but he got it. He understood it. In his 10-year-old mind, he, he understood the cost. It could cost him everything. A day or two later, he comes up to me and he says, yeah, I think I would. Oh. Man, if we understood it the way he did. If we understood it the way that all of these people who have gone on missions overseas, if we understood these medical doctors who could make plenty of money, live comfortable lives, do good things, they understood that when Jesus said, go, they went because nothing was theirs. 
They understood that to live in a third world country, to learn a language, to learn a whole new profession, to learn everything that it cost, everything that it cost, they would pay it because that's what he asked. And that's him. That's what I have to do. Not fun now, is it? Zero fun, sir. Gosh, what an uplifting message for Mother's Day. I mean, honestly, Hamish, what kind of sick preacher preaches hate your mother on Mother's Day? I promise you I didn't plan it this way. And once I realized what was going on, I really struggled. I mean, honestly, today of all days, shouldn't I be a little bit more positive? Isn't today one day to kind of, you know, lift us up a little bit, not go to the hard places, make it a little easier? Ah, but then, on the other hand, isn't that exactly why Jesus said what he said? We can't avoid it. In the end, I actually realized that this is really a truly appropriate message for Mother's Day for a couple of reasons. The first is my mom. I, uh, she may not feel like her story fits along some of Jill's stories or some of the biblical stories, but I've seen her faith at work. I remember being seven years old. We were living in Wellington, and my dad had an opportunity to work up here in Auckland. And that did not sit well with mum. She was born in Palmerston North. I mean, Wellington was a big city. And so she was intimidated, and there was fear and uncertainty. She didn't want to go. We had a great life there. But she laid all of that fear and that uncertainty at the feet of Jesus and said, whatever you want. And she came. Sometime later, I had an opportunity to go to Bible college, and she didn't want me to go all the way to America to go to Bible college because I'm her baby, you know, And, I mean, it wasn't even her choice, right? I mean, she didn't have a big say in this, but she had a choice about whether she was going to guilt trip me into staying or to get 100% behind me and support me in what I was doing. And she told me about that wrestling with God, but in the end, she submitted. She didn't know if I was coming back. Her daughter went and didn't come back for 14 years. But it didn't matter because God was in charge. So let me ask you, how do I best honor my mother on Mother's Day? How do I best honor my mom? By doing what she did. By doing what she taught me. By putting God first. Best way I can love my mom on Mother's Day is to hate her. That just doesn't sound right. (laughs) That's what I do. So that I can do that for my kids so that they can put God first too. I know Molly's mom's the same story, letting her go all the way across the world. She didn't come back. (laughs) But they supported us because that's what God wanted. The other reason that I think this is a great passage for us on Mother's Day is because of this candle. It's the other side of this coin. For people for whom Mother's Day and motherhood is a difficult painful subject for a lot of different reasons. And what's interesting about this passage is that in the midst of the difficulty and the harshness of what Jesus is saying, there's a hidden comfort. There's a hidden peace. 
Some people have a strained relationship with their mums. It's not, it's not a happy relationship, historically or even in the present. Putting Jesus above all else helps to focus our attention on a parent who will never let us down, who will never forsake us, who will always love us. Putting Jesus first gives us a parent that perfectly expresses their love for us. We can be treasured. For those who are mourning the passing of their mums, this verse puts us firmly in the arms of a parent who is always there and who never dies, who has already conquered death. For those women who desperately want to be mums but can't, I think Jesus' words lead us to a God who provides healing, who provides comfort and a true purpose. A God who ushers us into a community where we can all be mothers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters to each other. Where we can be the family that has become difficult to, to attain. I'm not going to pretend that makes it all happy and easy. I'm not going to pretend this is an easy pill to swallow. I'm not going to pretend that anything that Jesus said here is easy. This is not an easy thing to do. To give up everything, to put everything out on the line. But is it worth it? This week has been a hard week for me. I, some of you know I have depression, and some of you who have depression understand exactly what I'm going to say, but this week has been a real low trough. And I'm sitting here this morning, and I'm singing this song, and my body is tired, and my, my mind is scattered, and my heart is heavy, and yet I can still sing, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. My soul is in the hands of a God that cannot be defeated, that cannot be run down, cannot be destroyed, cannot be overwhelmed. It is well with my soul. And I'll tell you what, try it. Try offering me anything to give that up. Try offering me everything to give that up. Try offering it to, to Ross and to all of the people Jill was talking about. Offer them anything in exchange for putting God first. They won't take it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. There is no greater treasure. I'll tell you what. Jesus said what he said because he knows that until we give up everything, we don't realize that we never had anything to begin with. And now we are truly rich. Now we truly have everything, and no one can ever take that away from us. We're going to go to communion. Now there's, there's tables, two on each side, a little bit of bread, 
a little bit of juice representing how much it costs Jesus. We're talking about what we have to give up. We're talking about how hard it is for us to be a follower of Jesus. Think about what Jesus had to give up to follow his Father, to provide a path for us. Everything. More than just the physical pain he felt. It cost him everything, and he did it. God, the Bible says it pleased God to do this to Jesus for us. So we're going to take some communion, and we're going to think a little bit about what we have given up for him, what he has given up for us. And maybe it's a good time to recommit and to rethink whether we have given everything for him and whether we will give everything for him. Let me pray. Lord, you know my life, you know my heart, you know the times that I hold back. And you gently coax me into giving all. You give me patience and you give me mercy and you give the same to all of us here. And Lord, you have not intended to guilt us into feeling shame. You've not intended to make it impossible for us to come to you when you say these things. But Lord, you want to be clear and honest about what it costs to be your disciple. And yet, man, there's nothing greater. It's worth everything. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to give up everything to follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shore Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.